Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jack Jack Memorial Reading Throne here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut. This is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your friend, your ear lover, your beguiler, your Victorianologist and literary mansplainer in chief, Michael Ian Black. And we are in the midst of a seduction, my friends. An out and out seduction. Maybe even, and I mean, and that's almost the kindest way to put it. It's almost a, uh, it, it's close to an assault. It's close to a sexual assault being perpetrated by Arabella upon her long-suffering first love and ex-husband, Jude Folly. She has gotten him very drunk. And she has taken him back to the pork shop her father runs, the scene of such carnality. And she is leading him up the stairs one by one, one by one, stair after stair. At the end of chapter six, uh, we are at my house, dear, where there's nobody to spy out how ill you are. Now, third stair, fourth stair, that's it. Now we shall get on. And you know exactly how they are going to get on. Now, Jude is very drunk. I don't even know that he could perform his ex-husbandly duties with Arabella. And the, the chapter has just ended. I have not begun yet chapter seven. So we don't know the results of that evening, but I suspect that the results are going to involve some further entrapment of Jude's body and soul to Arabella. Now, at this point in his life, he really doesn't even care, right? He's lost everything. He's lost Sue. He's lost his faith. He has lost his children. He has nothing left, He is not even capable of being martyred, as he said, because to martyr oneself is to offer the promise of some reward, and he has no reward. 
There is nothing for him waiting on the other side of this life or the next. So how, how, so for the story to end, right? Something, something must happen that invests him back into this life. Will that something be Sue? Because that really is the only thing that he cares about. Or will it be some other thing? Some, something implanted in Arabella's belly, perhaps. But could he ever really love that child the way he loved the children he had with Sue? Of course, he had little father time by Arabella, that malevolent little monster, that psychopath, that serial killer, that Adam's family reject. But I think Jude loved the boy and loved raising the boy along with Sue. So what will happen? They've crept up the stairs. We begin on chapter 7. Arabella was preparing breakfast in the downstairs back room of this small, recently hired tenement of her father's. So I guess, is this the next morning? She put her head into the little pork shop in front and told Mr. Don it was ready. Don, endeavoring to look like a master pork butcher, in a greasy blue blouse and with a strap round his waist from which a steel dangled, came in promptly. "'You must mind the shop this morning,' he said casually. "'I've got to go and get some inwards and half a pig from Lumsden and to call elsewhere. "'If you live here, you must put your shoulder to the wheel, at least till I get the business started.' Okay, so I'm not sure I understand who Don is. D-O-N-N, Mr. Don.' Well, for today, I can't say. She looked deedily into his face. I've got a prize upstairs. Oh, what's that? A husband, almost. No. Yes, it's Jude. He come back to me. Your old original one. Well, I'm damned. (laughs) Well, I'm damned. He can't believe it, Mr. Don. No, nor can we. Nor can we, Don, and maybe not for the same reason, but maybe in fact for the same reason, because none of us can believe that anybody would voluntarily go with Arabella. Well, I always did like him, that I will say. But how does he come to be up there, said Don, humor struck and nodding to the ceiling. Don't ask inconvenient questions, father. What we've to do is to keep him till he and I are as we were. Oh, is Don her father? Is that? I don't know. Is her name Arabella Don? Is that what it is? Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. And I've just forgotten. Maybe Don is her father. She said it was her father's pork shop. So maybe that's what it is. And he's and she's saying you got to mind the story. Said I don't. She's saying I don't know if I can. I got a. I got a husband up there. Don't ask inconvenient questions, father. What we have to do is to keep him here till he and I are as we were. How was that? Married. Ah, well, it is the rummest thing I ever heard of, marrying an old husband again. And so much new blood in the world, he's no catch to my thinking. I'd have had a new one while I was about it. It isn't rum for a woman to want her old husband back for respectability, though for a man to want his old wife back. Well, perhaps it is funny, rather. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm such a good actor. And Arabella was suddenly seized with a fit of loud laughter in which her father joined more moderately. Yes, because uh, although there's some humor in it, her father's like, what are you getting on about, you crazy biatch? Be civil to him and I'll do the rest, she said, when she had recovered seriousness. Seriousness. He told me this morning that his head ached fit to burst, and he hardly seemed to know where he was. And no wonder, considering how he mixed his drink last night. We must keep him jolly and cheerful here for a day or two, and not let him go back to his lodging. Whatever you advanced, I'll pay back to you again. But I must go up and see how he is now, poor dearie. So I'm not sure what the, what the connivance is here exactly. Why can't he go back to his old lodging? Is it because there would then be some physical distance between he and Arabella? And if there were physical distance between them, then perhaps the cobwebs in his head would clear and he would realize that he does not belong with this woman, or she's trying to keep him like the dude in misery, you know, basically strapped to a bed, unable to move so she can torture him. She's Kathy Bates, he's James Kahn, and she's just going to torture the fuck out of him. Poor dearie. Arabella ascended the stairs, softly opened the door of the first bedroom, and peeped in. Finding that her shorn Samson was asleep, she entered to the bedside and stood regarding him. So Samson's strength, I guess, that was in his hair, right? And it was shorn, and then he lost his strength. He lost his 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 masculinity, shall we say, uh, once his hair was cut. Now, uh, I don't know uh, why she the, Hardy is describing him as a shorn Samson. Did he cut his hair? Is there something that I have forgotten that took place? Um, nevertheless, it is safe to say that he has been robbed, in a sense, of his masculinity, which is to say his own agency, because she has brought him here to this den of iniquity, this little pork shop, you know. And if you remember, it all began with pork. It all began with a pig wiener being hurled from the banks of the shore into his face, thwapping him with a... I don't know if that's what the way it would sound like, a little... Right? Right against his face, a little dick slap right against his face. And him going, well, who's this charming lass throwing a pig dick at me? And all his troubles began then. And so now her shorn Samson is asleep. She entered to the bedside and stood regarding him. The fevered flush on his face from the debauch of the previous evening lessened the fragility of his ordinary appearance, and his long lashes, dark brows, and curly black hair and beard against the white pillow completed the physiognomy of one whom Arabella, as a woman of rank passions, still felt it worthwhile to recapture. Highly important to recapture as a woman straightened both in means and in reputation. Her ardent gaze seemed to affect him. His quick breathing became suspended, and he opened 
his eyes. How are you now, dear? said she. It is I, Arabella. Ah, where? Oh, yes, I remember. You gave me shelter. I am stranded, ill, demoralized, damn bad. That's what I am. Then do stay there. There's nobody in the house but father and me, and you can rest till you are thoroughly well. I'll tell them at the stoneworks that you are knocked up. Well, there's a pretty pun, isn't there? That you are knocked up. Now, I don't know if that phrase, knocked up, has the same or had the same meaning in 1895, England, the fictional county of Wessex, as it does to our contemporary ears. Either way, it's a delicious pun, because you and I, reader, suspect that Arabella herself might be knocked up. But she roofied him last night, she brought him back, she tied him to the bed, she had her way with him. He probably doesn't remember. We don't know that she really had her way with him. We don't know what happened. But we suspect something untoward. Father's downstairs. And all around them, they are surrounded by pig. I wonder what they're thinking at the lodgings, said Jude. Like, hey, what happened to Jude last night? He didn't show up. You know, back then, people noticed these things. It's a little bit of a scandal. Now, you live in New York City. You know, you have an apartment. There might be 500 people in the apartment. You don't show up. Nobody's going to know. You could be dead in your apartment for months until somebody figures it out, you know? And then only then because it smells. I'll go round and explain. Perhaps you'd better let me pay up or they'll think we've run away. Uh, yes, you'll find enough money in my pocket there. Quite indifferent and shutting his eyes because he could not bear the daylight in his throbbing eyeballs, Jude seemed to doze again. Arabella took his purse, softly left the room, and putting on her outdoor things, went off to the lodgings she and he had quitted the evening before. Scarcely half an hour had elapsed ere she reappeared round the corner, walking beside a lad wheeling a truck on which were piled all Jude's household possessions and also the few of Arabella's things, which she had taken to the lodging for her short sojourn there. Jude was in such physical pain from his unfortunate breakdown of the previous night, and in such mental pain from the loss of Sue, and from having yielded in his half-somnolent state to Arabella, okay, so he did yield to her, and I guess he remembers, and he is no doubt distraught with himself for having done so that when he saw his few chattels unpacked and standing before his eyes in this strange bedroom, intermixed with woman's apparel, he scarcely considered how they had come there or what their coming signalized. So she's taken the liberty of essentially moving him out of his apartment, getting his stuff, bringing it back to her place, uh, no doubt pocketing the money that he had given her to pay the rent on the place. And she, all of her nefarious plannings are coming to fruition. I mean, what is she doing? 
I mean, is it evil? Is it evil what she's doing? It's not good. Is it evil? Does it rise to that level? I mean, there's a lot of malevolence there. Is it evil? Sure, let's go with that. Let's go with evil. And let's take a break. Yes, it's me, Michael, and Arabella is just talking to her father while Jude has been squirreled away upstairs, so I go on. Now, said Arabella to her father downstairs, we must keep plenty of good liquor going in the house these next few days. I know his nature, and if he once gets into that fearfully low state that he does get into sometimes, he'll never do the honorable thing by me in this world, and I shall be left in the lurch. He must be kept cheerful. He has a little money in the savings bank, and he's given me his purse to pay for anything necessary. Well, that will be the license, for I must have that ready at hand to catch him the moment he's in the humor. You must pay for the liquor. A few friends and a quiet convivial party would be the thing if we could get it up. It would advertise the shop and help me too. So, I mean... What is she doing? She got him drunk. She had sex with him. She's like, now that we've had sex again, the only honorable thing for you to do is marry me. But I know you won't. So the plan is, I'm just going to keep you drunk long enough and drunk enough so that when I get the license, which I'm going to pay for with the money you gave me to pay for your rent, uh, you'll be in a good mood. You'll sign the license. We'll be married. We'll have a little party. And by the way, it'll advertise your pork shop daddy-o. The machinations that are tumbling about in her mind. I mean, it's hard to keep up. If anybody's prepared for this industrial age, I tell you, it is Arabella. Arabella, whose mind is already full of gears. And that is the thing about a machine, of course, it has no morals. It only knows capital and the stuff that capital can produce. And she is spending his capital on marriage to secure her place. She lost her husband, the publican. She doesn't have a penny to put to her name. She sees Jude. Jude makes a little money as a stonemason and she just got him drunk. She got him laid. Now she's going to get him married and the whole thing's going to go off without a hitch or so she thinks. But she hasn't thought much further than that. I mean, there's going to come a point when they are married again and Jude is uh, sober enough to realize what has happened and what his life has become. And what does she think will happen then? What is the outcome there? You know, once the product has gotten to the consumer, as it were, there's generally a 30 day money back guarantee. And I feel pretty certain he's going to want to exercise that 30 day money back guarantee. It's a little harder when you get married, but he's not going to want to stay in that relationship because she sucks. I mean, she's awful. 
And I, I would say, yes, this has not only approached the border of evil, but crossed over the border and taken up residency. She's just, forget living in sin, she's living in evil. And so she, she tells this plan to her father. The father says, that can be got up easy enough by anybody who will afford victuals and drink. Well, yes, it would advertise the shop. That's true. Three days later, <laughs> three days later, when Jude had recovered somewhat from the fearful throbbing of his eyes and brain, but was still considerably confused in his mind by what had been supplied to him by Arabella during the interval to keep him jolly, as she expressed it. The quiet, convivial gathering suggested by her to wind Jude up to the striking point took place. So they're having this little party, I guess. Don had only just opened his miserable little pork and sausage shop, which had as yet scarce any customers. Nevertheless, that party advertised it well, and the Dons acquired a real notoriety among a certain class in Christminster who knew not the colleges, nor their works, nor their ways. Jude was asked if he could suggest any guest in addition to those named by Arabella and her father, and in a saturnine humor of perfect recklessness mentioned Uncle Joe and Stag and the decayed auctioneer and others whom he remembered as having been frequenters of the well-known tavern during his bout therein years before. He also suggested Freckles and Bower O'Bliss. Arabella took him at his word so far as the men, but drew the line at the ladies. Well, yes, Arabella would not want the competition for the little convivial gathering that is to take place there in the pork and sausage shop. It is meant to be, in fact, a sausage party. We're having a lot of fun with these pork puns, you guys. We're just having a tremendous amount of fun. And I don't know how aware Hardy was in sausage and porkin and knocking up puns. Let's assume for the sake of argument that he was aware and he himself was having a good old saucy laugh at his own insouciance. Another man they knew, Tinker Taylor, though he lived in the same street, was not invited. But as he went homeward from a late job on the evening of the party, he had occasion to call at the shop for trotters. Trotters, I think, are little sausages. I could be wrong about that. There were none in, but he was promised some the next morning. While making his inquiry, Taylor glanced into the back room and saw the guests sitting round, card-playing and drinking, and otherwise enjoying themselves at Don's expense. He went home to bed, and on his way out next morning wondered how the party went off. He thought it hardly worth while to call at the shop for his provisions at that hour, Don and his daughter being probably not up if they caroused late the night before. However, he found in passing that the door was open and he could hear voices within, though the shutters of the meat stall were not down. He went and tapped at the sitting room door 
and opened it. Well, to be sure, he said, astonished. Hosts and guests were sitting, card-playing, smoking, and talking, precisely as he had left them eleven hours earlier. The gas was burning and the curtains drawn, though it had been broad daylight for two hours out of doors. Yes, cried Arabella, laughing. Here we are, just the same. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves, oughtn't we? But it is a sort of housewarming, you see, and our friends are in no hurry. Come in, Mr. Taylor, and sit down. The tinker or rather reduced ironmonger, was nothing loath and entered and took a seat. I shall lose a quarter, but never mind, he said. Well, really, I could hardly believe my eyes when I looked in. It seemed as if I was flung back again into last night all of a sudden. So you are. Pour out for Mr. Taylor. He now perceived that she was sitting beside Jude, her arm being round his waist. Jude, like the rest of the company, bore on his face the signs of how deeply he had been indulging. "'Well, we've been waiting for certain legal hours to arrive to tell the truth,' she continued bashfully, and making her spiritous crimson look as much like a maiden blush as possible. "'Jude and I have decided to make up matters between us by tying the knot again, and as we find we can't do it without one another after all. So, as a bright notion, we agreed to sit on till late enough and go and do it all.' Offhand. Jude seemed to pay no great heed to what she was announcing, or indeed to anything whatsoever. The entrance of Taylor infused fresh spirit into the company, and they remained sitting till Arabella whispered to her father, Now we may as well go. But the parson don't know. "'Yes, I told him last night that we might come between eight and nine, "'as there were reasons of decency for doing it as early and quiet as possible, "'on account of it being our second marriage, "'which might make people curious to look on if they knew. "'He highly approved.' "'Oh, very well. I'm ready,' said her father, "'getting up and shaking himself. "'Now, old darling,' she said to Jude, "'come along as you promised.' "'When did I promise anything?' asked he, whom she had made so tipsy by her special special knowledge of that line of business as almost to have made him sober again, or to seem so to those who did not know him. "'Why?' said Arabella, affecting dismay. "'You've promised to marry me several times as we've sat here tonight. These gentlemen have heard you.' "'I don't remember it,' said Jude doggedly. "'There's only one woman, but I won't mention her in this Caffarnam. "'C-A-P-H-A-R-N-A-U-M. "'There's a footnote, thankfully. "'Sixty-three. "'Sixty-three is the footnote. "'Um, okay. Uh, okay. "'I have to sneeze, and I don't know if that's going to happen or not. "'So, I mean, is it one of those things that you just kind of wait out and see?' You know, sometimes these musty books, oh dear, they make you want to sneeze. Ah, 63. 
What is in Jude's mind, presumably, is that in Capernaum was a, this is a quote from Matthew, people which sat in darkness, not, as the text goes on, that they saw great light. And indeed, that is what he is doing. He's sitting in the back of a pork shop, literally in darkness, though the sun may shine outside. And he will not mention Sue's name there in darkness when she is all that is light and air, right? And he's saying, wait, I didn't, I didn't say I was going to marry you. What the hell are you talking about? And she's saying, oh, no, there's all these guys who remember you saying, oh, you're not going to back down on your word now, are you, Jude? And he's saying, I, don't, I, I mean, I don't know anything. I'm drunk. So Arabella looked towards her father. Now, Mr. Farley, be honorable, said Don. You and my daughter have been living here together these three or four days, quite on the understanding that you were going to marry her. Of course, I shouldn't have had such goings-on in my house if I hadn't understood that. As a point of honor, you must do it now. Don't say anything against my honor, enjoined Jude hotly, standing up. I'd marry the W of Babylon. And uh, W is a dash, dash, dash. And I think we're meant to understand the word there is hur. Hur of Babylon. But, you know, in those days, you wouldn't say such a thing. The W word, as it were. I'd marry the W of Babylon rather than do anything dishonorable. No reflection on you, my dear. It is a mere rhetorical figure, what they call in the books hyperbole. I'm doing my best now to uh, sort of read this in a kind of drunken slur, but not so drunk because she had said in it said before in her line of business, she could make him so tipsy that he appeared to be sober. So as a performer now, as a thespian, I am endeavoring to make it uh, sound like so. So the father's just as much of a rat as Arabella, you know, I mean, the father knew the father knew what her plans were. And and, you know, basically just by dint of him living under their roof, he is obligated to marry her. And that's why she had to bring him back to the pork shop instead of back to his his own living quarters. Because it, it honor would demand that after having lived there and and doing what they done for the last three or four days on their drunken bender that he would then be obligated to marry her. And now Jude's saying, well, I would do anything. I'd even marry the whore of Babylon rather than risk my honor. No reflection on you, my dear. I don't mean to compare you to the whore of Babylon, though that's what I just did. I'm just using a little what they call in the books hyperbole. Keep your figures for your debts to friends who shelter you, said Don. If I am bound in honor to marry her, as I suppose I am, though how I came to be here with her I know no more than a dead man, marry her I will, so help me God. I have never behaved dishonorably to a woman or to any living thing. I am not a man who wants to save himself at the expense of the weaker among us. There, 
Never mind him, dearie, said she, putting her cheek against Jude's. Come up and wash your face, and just put yourself tidy, and off we'll go. Make it up with father. They shook hands. Jude went upstairs with her, and soon came down looking tidy and calm. Arabella, too, had hastily arranged herself, and accompanied by Dawn, away they went. "'Don't go,' she said to the guests at parting. "'I've told the little maid to get the breakfast while we are gone, "'and when we come back we'll all have some. "'A good strong cup of tea will set everybody right for going home.'" And I'll end there. So Arabella has gotten her way once again, it seems. She seduced poor Jude, she brought him home, she sheltered him and liquored him up, and kept him tied to that bed for three or four days, and then brought him downstairs and arranged for a marriage, and even over his objections, she has won, or so it would appear to this point. And let us take another break. And we're back on Obscure. You know, last night I watched Gangs of New York, the Martin Scorsese movie. And there's a scene in it where Bill the Butcher played by the terrific Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, I'd, I'd, I don't know if um, if any other actor could deliver those drunken lines quite the way quite as aptly as I did when reciting Jude. But if any other actor could... I think it's Daniel Day-Lewis. And there's a scene in the movie where uh, crime has sort of gotten out of hand at the five points where Bill the Butcher reigns as a kind of warlord. And the boss of New York Underworld basically says to him, this is getting out of control. Let's hang a few people. You know, it doesn't matter who, just hang some people there to kind of, you know, get things back back in order. And so there's a scene where they're leading out four dudes to be hung. And as they're parading past the condemned men, uh, one of them, you know, stops at Bill the butcher and Bill says, how you doing there? And he says, oh, you know, not great, you know, getting hung today. And uh, they have a kind of brief but amiable conversation. And the subtext of it seems to be this is just how life is, you know? Sometimes bad things happen, but you behave honorably in any circumstance. And so that is what Jude is doing. Jude is the condemned man being led to the gallows, having a conversation with, in a metaphorical sense, his executioner, who is also going to be his bride. She is killing him just as surely as Bill the Butcher is killing the men being led to the gallows. And it cost almost nothing, right? It cost just a little bit in food and ale for her to get her way. And such are the ways of the world, you guys, as we end this episode with Jude about to be re-remarried, three-married, I guess, the second time to his first wife, or the third time, his third marriage, his third marriage, his first to his second wife. 
That's the, that's a good and confusing but accurate way to put it. His third marriage, but his first to his second wife. No, but his second to his first wife. Right. And he's doing it just because, just because he's drunk and because he doesn't want to be dishonorable. And like everybody, uh, with the exception of Sue in this book, he has no real foresight. He can't look ahead. Young Jude could have, childish boy Jude could have, could look ahead to the future because foresight, I imagine, requires a certain amount of optimism. You have to have something to look to if you're going to bother with looking ahead at all. If you have nothing but gray in front of you and only gray promises to be ahead of you, no matter how far you walk, then really there's no reason to look much beyond your own nose because you know what is ahead of you, morass and more morass. So that's where Jude is heading towards a kind of swampy and gray future with Arabella. But in that moment, he does not care because he has no future. He has given of himself everything he has to give. He is wrung out. Well, in this case, he is sodden with booze, but soon he will be wrung out after, as Arabella says, they drink that strong cup of tea that will set everybody right for going home. Well, I think it's time for all of us to go home. We have plowed ahead. We have uh, explored the deep crevices of Arabella's syphilitic brain. I'm going to assume she has syphilis, although she very well may not. But she behaves like one in the throes of some grotesque disease. And, you know, Jude's going along with it. What else is he going to do? Nothing. So, how will this thing resolve itself? You know, how, how, how is Hardy going to extricate himself from this final indignity upon which he has hoisted Jude? Find out next time on another hair-raising episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. Mm-hmm.